along. Today we're actually starting a new book in the book of Philippians and this would be a great opportunity for you to maybe get one of the notebooks and you'd be able to have notes throughout the whole book of Philippians uh, once we're finished. 11 years ago, I was sitting on the football field at Jacksonville State University. And on that particular day, it was me and it was hundreds of other people that were there to receive our degrees. It's that day that you've been working toward and looking forward to and inching toward pretty much all of your life. And I can remember sitting there in the midst of this crowd and everybody around me is just buzzing. The whole stadium is just buzzing and everyone's talking about some are moving back to where they were originally from. Some are moving off to careers. Some were starting jobs and starting families. Everybody though were, was ecstatic about just being finished and having this chapter of their lives behind them. But you know, I can remember sitting in the middle of that stadium, surrounded by joyful people, with my family up in the bleachers watching me, my wife of a year up there watching me and cheering me on. And I can remember sitting there in the middle of that stadium and being totally miserable. I, I can remember sitting there and not being excited and feeling guilty that I wasn't exciting because I found it so dissatisfying. That that moment was supposed to be a crescendo moment in my life. And yet I felt strangely empty, worthless. It was supposed to be a mark of accomplishment. And yet I didn't feel accomplished at all. It was supposed to be this, this, uh, this moment in which it was held up all the work that had been done in this, this milestone marker. And yet I felt as though I had failed. I can remember about three and a half years ago, being at St. Vincent's Hospital and sitting in the cafeteria the day after that Sarah was born. And this is one of the greatest moments in life, the days that your children are born. And I can remember we were excited and we had rushed to get into the house and all, all of those kinds of things before she was born. But I can remember sitting the next morning in the, in the cafeteria at St. Vincent's and being so overcome that I could hardly catch my breath. Being worried about so many things for so many reasons, most of them totally meaningless. And I can remember calling out to God, God, should I not be happy right now? God, should I not be thrilled right now? For me, happiness has not come easily. For me, happiness has been a battle. Joy has been a battle. I see some people and it feels as though their joy and their smiles and their happiness is so effortless and I'm envious of that. But you know, I think that my experience is normative, not unique. I think my experience is the experience that most people have that we go through lives and failures feel bigger than we thought they would. And accomplishments feel less than we thought they would. We come and we approach milestones in our lives, milestones that we have built up in our minds and built up in our hearts. And we step over the threshold of that milestone and we feel strangely empty. Because you see, as we live in a fallen world, Joy is not a given. 
And joy is not automatic. Joy is a fight. Joy is a battle. Joy is a day in, day out war with powers and principalities that we cannot see. And in my battle with faith, my battle with joy, there's been no book that I've turned to more often, no book that I've turned to, especially in the last two to three years as just, as felt like all hell on earth has been unleashed in my house than the book of Philippians. You know, the book of Philippians is barely over 2,000 words long. And yet out of those 2,000 words, 16 times out of the 36 times that it occurs in the New Testament, we have the word joy, the word joy. And so we know at front and center, one of the primary themes of the book of Philippians is how we might attain joy how we might delight in joy, how we might rejoice in our sufferings, how we might have peace without understanding, how we might, whether times are, are plentiful and abundant or times are thin and, and law, filled with loss, that we might be able to sustain joy at all times and through all moments. So as we turn there for the first time this morning, we turn there as a congregation intent on being joyful. I turned there this morning as a pastor and a husband and a dad and a man that is determined to fight the battle for joy. I, I, I come praying this morning that our congregation, remember at the beginning of 2019, I said the theme of this year will be joy. And my prayer has been that the Lord would call us into the middle of Philippians and call us to lives of durable joy. Joy that isn't up and down, joy that isn't fleeting, coming and going, but that joy that can be sustained in spite of the hardships of life. So let's turn there now for the first time together. Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So if, when you get to Philippians chapter one, would you stand with me this morning? This morning, we're, we're gonna just look at the first two verses and I'm gonna aim to give an overview of the book of Philippians and to kind of give you some insight into where we're headed and the things that we're going to be studying together. So God's word says in Philippians chapter one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. This morning you may be seated. And what we're going to see here in Philippians, especially this week and next week, they're almost like a joint sermon together, is that over these first, this introductory, uh, this introduction, the salutation of Paul, and then tomorrow or our next Sunday, as we see the thankfulness and the prayer of Paul, what we're going to see is an introduction to what Paul plans to unpack for the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi began out of remarkable circumstances. Paul is doing ministry with Silas in Asia Minor and his ministry has went wonderfully and they're planning churches and they're seeing people come to faith. But then one night in a dream, Paul has a vision and in this vision, a man of Macedonia comes to him and the man of Macedonia says, come to Macedonia and preach the gospel to us. 
Now, I've never had an experience like that. I would like to once. I think it would probably freak me out. But this is Paul's experience. And Paul does what Paul does. He responds in faith. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they leave Asia Minor. They get on board of a ship and they sail across the sea over to Macedonia. And the first city of Macedonia that they come to is Philippi. Now, this is significant to us. Philippi is the first city in Europe to get a church. The Philippian church is the first European church. And that's significant because the reason that Iron City Baptist Church is here and the reason that there is a Christian church in Alabama and in the United States was because missionaries were sent here from where? Europe. So we're seeing here in the book of Philippians, the beginning of our church. We're seeing the beginning of the Christian missionary movement that would make its way over here to the new world. When Paul comes into Philippi, when they arrive, they get there and they realize there's not very many Jews there. It's overwhelmingly Gentile. In fact, there are so few Jews in Philippi that they can't even uh, support a synagogue. And so he comes upon a group of women that are praying, a group of women that are praying that can't be, they're not at a synagogue, they're just kind of at a, a prayer room. And he begins to preach the gospel to them, which is remarkable in and of itself. Paul wasn't turned away because there wasn't a synagogue and Paul wasn't turned away because there were women there to listen to him and not men. No, no, Paul goes over the cultural barriers, over the cultural taboos, and he just preaches the gospel. And the Bible says, you can read all of this in Acts chapter 16. The Bible says that, that he opens the heart of a woman named Lydia and she becomes the very first convert in all of Europe. And Lydia goes and she shares the gospel with her whole family and her whole family comes into faith. And there's the beginning of the Philippian church with the conversion of a single merchant woman who sold purple goods. Well, Paul and Silas, they continue on their ministry. And as they continue on their ministry, he casts the demon out of a girl that's there, out of a servant girl, and he is imprisoned as a result. And while Paul is in prison, a, he, he and Silas are in prison and they're chained to their guards. And while they're chained to their guards, a earthquake comes and it shakes the prison and the doors flail open and the, and the stocks fall off of his wrists and off of his chains. And, and the jailer is awakened and he immediately draws his sword intending to impel himself, believing that he has lost his prisoners. But Paul is there and they are singing. They're singing. And he says, brother, hey, don't kill yourself for we have not left. We are here. How many of y'all would follow that storyline? And the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to know your God? What must I do to know a God as great as that? And he's converted. And his whole family is converted. And then they basically take Paul and Silas to the county line and say, hey, bro, don't come back. But the church has already begun through Lydia, through the jailer, through those converted from their families. The church has begun. And Timothy and Luke, they stay behind and they raise up Epaphroditus. And by the time we get to Philippians, 10 years later, we have a church that is strong and we have a church that is effective and we have a church that is generous and we have a church that may just be the church in which Paul finds the most 
joy. And so the occasion for this particular letter is one, he wants to thank them. He wants to thank them. They have supported his ministry financially. They have allowed him to go and travel and be able to preach the gospel in various places. Not only that, but they have supported the impoverished church in Jerusalem. And so Paul wants them to know, I praise God for you. I am thankful for you. It is because of you that the gospel is spreading around the globe and around Europe. He wants to thank them, but at the same time, they send Epaphroditus to him and he brings up some threats that are encroaching upon the church at Philippi. Some threats to the strong church. These strong churches are not immune to the threats of the enemy. Strong churches are not immune to the temptations of the enemy. And as joyful as the church at Philippi was and as much joy as it was that that. Paul found in the church at Philippi, there were some threats encroaching upon their joy. And Paul is writing in response to these threats at how the church at Philippi may address them. And so this morning, I find you in one of two places as I preach these, this series to you. Some of you, you are in the midst of a battle for joy. Life is not good. Things are hard. You're, you're depressed. You're anxious you're unsure, you're shaking, your stomach is nodding. You don't even maybe know why, but you're just down. These threats have come, in, come into your life and they have waged war against you and it feels like they're winning. For others of you, you're in a season and you could be lulled into a false sense of security. But what Paul would say is even those of you whose happiness and joy feel rock solid, even those of you who have your joy rooted in abiding with Christ, that it is under threat as long as you live in this fallen world. And so this morning we come to look at an overview of Philippians and an overview of the threats to joy that they faced and that we faced. The first threat that I want us to see this morning is a divided church, a divided church. There's nothing more central in Paul's mind as he comes and begins to unpack for us this letter to the church at Philippi than the idea that the church must be together, that the church must be unified. Because you see what Paul understands is, is that divided churches have joyless members. Divided churches have joyless members. Some of you have been a part of churches like that. Some of you have, have been and your faith was, was red hot and you were excited and then you came into a church and the church was divided and it was like a bucket of water had been poured, poured over your faith and it extinguished your zeal and it extinguished your passion. This is what Paul recognizes. Paul recognizes that it isn't just an interruption to our joy. It is the elimination of our joy. And it isn't just the elimination of our joy right now, but it is the elimination of our joy for the future. See, brothers and sisters, the church, the church is not just to be a place in which joyful people gather. It is a place where people come together to increase their joy. The church is to be a source of joy, a fountain of joy, a spigot of joy in the life of the Christian where we go out into the world where it's filled with things that will extinguish our faith and extinguish our passion. But then we come back together and we join together in passion with one another and we inspire each other forward and we fan the flame that we have in one another so that our joy might be rekindled again. So if you're divided from one another, 
if you're split from one another, it isn't just that you have a loss of joy in the moment. It's that you have broken off joy at the spigot. It is that you have separated yourself from the means of joy that Christ has given to you in your life, the church. See, disunity breaks off joy at the spigot. It doesn't just dry up your joy, it keeps you dry. It doesn't just make you thirsty, it slowly kills you by dehydration. And so we can see what a priority this is for Paul. Now there's a couple of anomalies, a couple of things that Paul, wait, Paul introduces himself to the church at Philippi in this letter that is unique to this letter and different from all of the other letters. One of those is the way that he includes Timothy. Notice that. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now Timothy did not write this letter. Paul writes it all the way through in the first person. And if you read all of the other letters, you see how he introduces himself to the church in Rome or to the church in Corinth or to the church in Galatia. Paul almost always, without fail, raises up this. He says, I am Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle. Uh, he, He might say an apostle and a servant, but he always starts with, I am an apostle. That is, I have an apostolic authority in your church. But he doesn't do that here, does he? He doesn't do that here. And he, instead, here, he places him and his protege, Timothy, on level footing. He says, it's Paul and Timothy together in gospel partnership. It is Paul and Timothy in unity with one another. Not Paul and then Timothy, but Paul and Timothy on same level ground. It is not the apostle and his protege. It is two slaves of Christ in partnership together. That right out of the gate, Paul is addressing them from a posture of humility. Paul is addressing them from a a position of, of lowering himself as he presents to them. Now, why is he doing that? What he's wanting them to see is there is no rivalry between he and Timothy. They are, they are recognized as different levels of leaders. Yes, Paul is the founder at the church at Philippi. Paul is the overseer uh, as the, the apostolic overseer for the church of Philippi. Paul can say something and it carries a far greater weight than that of Timothy, but they are not different. There is not one up here and one down here. There is not a, a platform. There is not a a. a, a, a ivory tower in the kingdom of God. No, all of us are on level footing at the end of the cross beneath Jesus's feet as partners in the gospel. What he's saying here is this is not about Timothy's agenda. And this is not about Paul's agenda. And this is not about Epaphroditus's agenda. And this is not about Syntyche and Yodia's agenda. And this is not about Cody's agenda or Tony's agenda or Chris's agenda. This is about the mission of Christ. This is about the mission of Christ. See, brothers and sisters, our agendas divide us, but Christ's mission unifies us. Our agendas divide us, but Christ's mission unifies us. Our preferences in the church fragment the church, but Christ's mission for the church unifies the church. And that's why just a few verses later in chapter one, verse 27, Paul will write, let me hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
In other words, let me, let it be the testimony of your church that you are bound together as servants of Christ, like Paul and Timothy, pressing on for the advancement of the gospel, for the proclamation of the gospel, for the hope of all people. Tom Rainer, he writes it like this. Inwardly focused churches die and outwardly focused churches thrive. We, we could alter that to, to speak, to, to fit the individual Christian. That inwardly focused Christians die, spiritually speaking, and outwardly focused Christians thrive. That, that whenever we become obsessed with our preferences, whenever we become obsessed with the way we want to see the church run, whenever we become obsessed with our programs and our music style and our this and our that and I really wish it was this way and I really wish it was that way, what will happen is that the advancement of our agenda will stop the advancement of the gospel through that church. And the same can be said of us as Christians. That what happens is we become wrapped up in the crisis of the moment, don't we? We become wrapped up in whatever crisis is happening in our life and, in our, in our, and we just stare at it. We become inwardly focused and the longer we stare at the crisis, the longer that we stare at the hardship, the longer that we stare at the difficulty, the bigger it seems, doesn't it? And so it begins to kill us. It begins to put us to death. And so what Paul would say is no church, no, not what do I want, but what has Christ called us to? No, no, what, not what crisis is in my life, but how is it that I can partner with my brothers and sisters for the broader, for the broader kingdom, for the broader mission? Because you see, joy comes from the mission, not consumption. Joy comes from the mission, not consumption. See, there is a misperception that we have been hardwired here in America, and that is to believe that if I can just get what I want, if I can just attain my goals, if I can just achieve my ambitions and aspirations, then I will be joyful. I think so often in my life, the reason that I have found myself miserable is because I will set myself a goal and I am a task-oriented dude. I set myself a goal and I meet that goal and I tell myself the whole way, if I can just get there, if I can just have this position, if our church can just reach this level, if offerings can just get to here, if, if I can just have my family like this, if we can just have a savings account this way. And so we set a goal and we press on to the goal and we get to the goal like college graduation and you get there and you think, oh, this is it? This doesn't feel anything like I thought it would. And the only thing that we know to do is to set another goal, a loftier goal, a higher goal, a new aspiration. And we begin to go and we press on and we dig and we scratch and we claw and we fight and we get to that goal and we get there and we think, still nothing? Still nothing? That what happens, in other words, is we turn more inwardly focused and more inwardly focused and more inwardly focused so that the hardships and the problems and the crises in our life get bigger and bigger and bigger and the accomplishments seem meaningless and worthless and the failures are exacerbated and exaggerated so they seem huge in our lives. 
And so we've been convinced that consumption is the answer to our depression and consumption is the answer to our hardship and consumption is the answer to our misery. And yet joy, Paul says, isn't the result of consumption. Joy is the result of living in sync with the design of Christ for your life on the mission of Christ. That it isn't turn inwardly, but focus outwardly. You know, there's something strange that if you're facing a crisis in your life, that it will minister to you you to help someone else who's in crisis? You ever experienced that? That outwardly focus allows you to put your problems in perspective, doesn't it? That as you begin to help other people with their problems and you help meet other people's needs, you think, man, this guy doesn't even have a meal. And I'm sitting here worried about how quickly I'm gonna pay off my car. And it's the same for churches. That the joy of the church is not anchored to the inward, inward focus of the church, but the joy of the church is found in whether or not that church is living in sync with the mission of Christ and the design of Christ. And that's why Paul addresses this letter to all the saints. You notice that? You know, it's, it's subtle, isn't it? He says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. That, the word all, we're gonna see that just in the first 11 verses next week that he uses the word all or some form of all eight different times. You think unity matters to Paul? And what he wants us to see is that there is an allness to the life of the church, that we are all responsible for the mission, that we are all responsible for one another's joy, that we are all responsible for how it goes with each other. That unity is an everyone responsibility. That means that my joy requires me fulfilling my responsibilities to the unity of the church and to help you fulfill your responsibilities to the unity of the church. He puts us together. And he anchors this very uniquely, doesn't he? He says, all, to, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Now, this phrase in Christ Jesus is very Pauline. It's something that, that he uses a lot and it's referring to our union with Christ. He says, so our unity with one another is anchored in our unity as Christians with Christ. That it is our union with Christ that enables us to be united to one another. You might think back to when we talked about John chapter 15. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, abide in me and I in you that your joy may be full. Remember what he's talking about there? He's talking about how he is the vine and we are the branches. But what does he say? There is one vine and many branches, many branches. So there's implications to that, that the way in the Christian life to have joy is by abiding in Christ, resting in Christ, going to Christ, being connected to Christ, that Christ is the source of our vitality, that Christ is the source of our health. And because he is the vine and there are many branches, it's all of us abiding in Christ together. But something happens that when you abide in Christ and when I abide in Christ, we aren't just abiding in Christ, we are abiding with one another. Do you see that? And since abiding in Christ is the source of joy, abide in me and I in you that your joy may be full. Since abiding in Christ is the source of joy, the vine of joy, the fountain of joy, that means that our relationships with one another are to coexist in an abiding joy together. So if I don't have joy in my life, if I don't have joy in my life, there's a twofold reason. 
One, primarily, I have been disconnected from the vine in some way, that I am not abiding in Christ. But when I cease to abide in Christ, I at the very same time cease to abide with my brothers and my sisters. That abiding with Christ brings me in unity with the church and it creates not a cycle of misery in my life, but rather a cycle of joy in my life. And that's why if we are divided from each other, our joy is wrecked. It's wrecked. Because if, if we are divided, the only way that we are divided is if we have divided ourselves from Christ first. Do you see this? And that's why in chapter four, Paul says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There was disagreement in the church. He says, so I entreat you. I entreat you for the sake of your joy, for the joy of the church, for the advancement of the gospel, agree together. He wants their joy to be increased, not hampered, not hindered. The antidote for division is humility. The antidote for division is humility. It's this hype of humility that says, I may be an apostle, but really I'm just a slave for Christ. It's the kind of humility that he will discuss in chapter two, the hallmark of the whole book, when he points us to Christ and he says, look at Christ. He was in every way God, and yet he emptied himself, coming in the form of a servant, humbling himself on the cross. It's the kind of humility that says, I may be God, but I will lay down my life for the joy of my people. See, it's humility that calls us away from consumption and toward the mission. It's humility that says, I can't produce fruit on my own. I must abide. It's humility that says, my sister's joy is just as important as my joy. It's humility that acknowledges that another way may be better than my way. And even if my way is better, it's not that big of a deal. It's humility that allows us to abide in Christ and with one another for the pursuit, not just of my joy, but of my joy with each other's joy. The second threat that we find to our joy here in Philippians is a false gospel. A divided church and then a false gospel. The second real anomaly that we have here in the introduction that's distinct from all of Paul's other uh, introductions in the epistles is this mention of the overseers and the deacons. You see that? That's unique. It stands out in Philippians. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And there's probably a couple of reasons that he does that. The, the primary reason may be because they have overseen the fundraising that has helped support Paul and which he is championing and he is thanking them for. But I think the, the, the other reason is that it is the responsibility of the elders and the deacons in the church. It is their primary responsibility to guard the joy of the church. It is the primary responsibility. The deacons serve the church so that the church might increase in joy. The elders lead the church and preach God's word and teach God's word so that the joy of the church might be defended and might be advanced and might be increased. That if you do not find joy in your elders and joy in your deacons, there is a fracture somewhere that is unhealthy. There is unhealth somewhere that must be addressed and addressed urgently. And so there is no way that is more important for elders and deacons to preserve the joy of the church 
than by preserving the doctrine of the church, than by preserving the gospel, the faithfulness to the gospel. And this is at front and center, Paul's concern for the church at Philippi, for any drift in joy, for any drift in faithfulness, for any drift in unity is first and foremost, a drift from Christ and the true gospel. And so what we see here are at least two perversions of the gospel. And I think we should see these perversions. I think we should see these false gospels like we would see a double agent. That they are enemies camouflaged as allies. They come to us and they look like, like, like wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus says, right? That they come and they present well and they're attractive. They may even be exciting, but they are lethal. Lethal to me, lethal to you, lethal to Iron City Baptist Church, and most of all, lethal to our joy in Christ. The first of these double agents is the enemy of legalism. Legalism. He says in chapter three, verse two, he says this, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he's concerned about the same thing that's happened in Galatia, happening at Philippi. In Galatia, you had the Judaizers, right? And they came in and they said, all of the rules of the old covenant, all of the, uh, all of the circumcision of the old covenant must now be applied in the new covenant. That now it is not just the circumcision of the heart, but also the circumcision of the flesh. That it isn't just that you abide in Christ and commune with Christ, but you must at the same time commune through the festivals that have been passed down from us to us through the Jews. And so they came and they added to the law of Christ. They added to the law of Christ greater requirements and said, you can do this and you can't do that. That Christ is sufficient to save you. But if you are going to remain in Christ, if Christ is going to, if you are going to continue in your salvation in Christ, you must abide by the rules that we have established. And Paul finds it abhorrent. He finds it oppressive. He finds it lethal. You see, legalism is self-dependence camouflaged as piety. Legalism is adding to the law of Christ that you might in some way improve yourself in the kingdom. Legalism adds to God's word requirements that God didn't say so that you can separate yourself, not through holiness, but through effort. So you see, legalism magnifies you not Christ. Legalism says, I can do it. I am good enough. I am godly enough. I am strong enough. I am wise enough. I don't need Christ. I will set myself apart from my brothers and sisters. Legalism turns the Christian faith into a competition as to who can be the godliest, who can sacrifice the most, who can do the most. And at the same time, it takes our eyes off of the risen Christ and places it in the mirror. See, legalism attempts to earn joy. Legalism attempts to earn joy. It's an ongoing tug of war between feeling really good about yourself and really bad about yourself because you're always trying to perform up to a standard that lets you somehow attain joy. And you only come out one of those two ways, isn't it? it? Legalism either leaves you feeling as though you've been shortchanged. In other words, I've done so well, I've done so much, I don't deserve the bad things that are happening to me. 
I've done so well and I've done so much, I deserve more good things to happen to me. Or, or you've also probably experienced this. Legalism also says, I have done so poorly. I am so horrendous. I am so wretched. Why would God allow me to even breathe? Why would I allow, be allowed to have any goodness from God, any kindness from God? So the focus of legalism is upon you. Legalism either makes you feel really good about you or really bad about you. And usually it's an up and down proposition, a tug of war. One day I feel really good about me because I woke up early and I read my Bible. The next day I feel really bad about me because I slept late and ate Fruit Loops. But I can't feel good and I can't feel bad for any prolonged period of time because I'm trying to earn joy and time is a wasting. But do you see what he says? He says, grace to you. Grace to you. Not grace by you. Grace to you. You didn't earn the grace. You didn't purchase the grace. Jesus earned the grace. Jesus purchased the grace. Jesus gave you the grace. Jesus brought you in by grace. It is to you, not by you, but to you and for you through Christ. You see, the gospel, the gospel doesn't leave you feeling good about you and the gospel doesn't leave you feeling bad about you. The gospel leaves you feeling great about God, about God. There's a second threat though, a second enemy, a second, a second operative and it is the double agent of licentiousness. The double agent of licentiousness. You know, James Bond, he says he has a license to kill, right? This is a license to sin. That's what it means. You might have heard the word antinomianism. If, you know, if you're familiar with that word, it would apply here. In chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, he says this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Listen, this is the definition of licentiousness. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. You see, legalism tries to earn joy, licentiousness pursues joy through indulgence. Legalism says, let me add to the law of Christ because I can do it. Licentiousness says the law of Christ is totally irrelevant in my life. It doesn't matter what I do. Where as much as I want to sin, it only serves to increase grace. Except Romans 6, Paul says what? By no means is that the case. No, if that's your appeal, your God is your belly. You want sex on your schedule, not on God's. You want to spend money your way, not God's. You want to shape the priority of your families your way, not God's. And licentiousness in all of its wonder and all of its encouragement and all of its deception always leads to masked misery. Why is it that so many of us are so miserable? We're trying to buy our way into joy. We're trying to sleep our way into joy. We're trying to relationship our way into joy. We're trying to information our way into joy, education our way into joy. But I've drank and I'm still thirsty. I've eaten and I'm still hungry. 
I've purchased, but I still need more. And the gospel says, the gospel says, grace to you for you are saints of Jesus Christ. You are holy through Jesus Christ. You have been set aside by Christ. You see, the atoning, saving, regenerating work of Jesus is not impotent and it is not ineffectual. Jesus doesn't change you spiritually without changing you actually. It transforms you. It changes you inwardly and it is evidenced outwardly. And that's why, that's why, just a few verses later, he will say, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This morning, how are you seeking joy? How are you seeking joy? Are you trying to earn joy? Do you think if I could just wake up earlier, If I could just work a little bit longer, if I could just obey a little bit better, do you keep looking in the mirror and detesting what you see and saying, you're not good enough for happiness and you're not good enough for joy? Oh, brother or sister, if that is you, I call you to Jesus who has purchased it for you. I call you to Jesus who says, grace to you, not grace by you. I call you to abide in Christ and abide with his church that your joy may be full. Are you trying to indulge your way to joy? Are you trying to buy your way to joy? Are you trying to sleep and educate your way to joy? Oh, brother or sister, I call you away from your indulgence. I call you away from earthly things. I call you away from the satisfaction of the flesh. And I remind you, you are saints in Jesus Christ set aside for a life of holiness. Live by a power that is alien and foreign to you. And he who began a great work in you, oh brother or sister, is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Live like it. Live like it. The joy is not about being a better you. It is not about buying a better you. The joy is about a risen Christ who has secured it for you on your behalf. There's a final threat, brothers and sisters. And the final threat is a misunderstood trial. A misunderstood trial. Paul writes this letter with chains from jail. Imagine that. A letter about joy, a letter about peace, a letter about abiding in Christ and the unity of the church and you're locked down in chains for preaching the gospel. When Paul talks about peace, he's serious about it. See, he tells them, you're going to face opposition. He doesn't hide that. He tells them, you're going to face oppression. He doesn't hide that. The the goal for joy is not to avoid opposition. And the goal to achieve joy is not to avoid oppression. The goal of the Christian life is to discover how one can have joy in spite of all of those things. That's what's supernatural. Anybody can be happy with a billion dollars on a yacht and a perfect family. But that's not real. Real life is how is it through a hard marriage I can have joy? How is it through rebelling children can I have peace? How is it through an up and down career can I have worth and significance? And so he says, peace from God. You see that? You see that? Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, at the Lord Jesus Christ. Getting right to the heart of the matter. 
And what he wants the Philippians to understand and what I want Iron City and what I've prayed for Iron City Baptist Church to understand is that God's people can have peace when life isn't peaceful. God's people can have peace when life isn't peaceful because peace does not come from a harmonized family and peace does not come from a lucrative career and peace does not come from healthy children. Peace comes from God. And if we have God, we can have peace. If we have God together, we can have peace together. We can have unity together. We can have joy together. See, our enemy uses trials. He uses suffering to undermine the goodness of God and the power of God. What he wants to convince you is one of two lies. Either God isn't willing, that is, God isn't good enough, or that God isn't able, that is, God isn't mighty enough. And he comes into the hardships of your life and the hardships of your marriage and the hardships of your parenting and the hardships of your health. And he says, what do you want to do? God isn't willing and God isn't able. God doesn't want to or God isn't able to. And Paul, Paul comes from prison, no less. And he says, do you not get it? Do you not get it? Those are lies. You can have cancer and have joy simultaneously in Christ. You can have joy and have headaches simultaneously in Christ. You can wake up weak day in and day out, but don't you wake up one second in all of your weakness and not realize you wake up with the mercies of God renewed for you. See, many of you, you look at your life and joy seems impossible. You look at your life and peace, it seems impossible. I, I, I'm with Paul. Like, I testify like, by my own testimony. That's how it feels for me so often. But this is what Philippians 4.13 really means. It, it doesn't mean I can score touchdowns. It doesn't mean that I can dunk a basketball. That ain't never happening. It doesn't mean that if I'm bad at science, I can still become a doctor. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It means I can have joy and I can have peace in the midst of hardship, in the midst of nothing, in the midst of bankruptcy, in the midst of poor health. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is grace to me. It is peace bought for me. See, joy isn't a feeling. This is a quote from Gordon Fee. Joy isn't a feeling. Joy is an activity. Joy isn't you feeling good about everything that's happening in your life. Joy is having cancer and trusting God anyway. Joy is going through the rebellion of a child and trusting God anyway. Joy is facing down the barrels of depression and trusting Christ anyway. Joy is looking at 
at, at a diploma that never comes and a degree that never comes and a job that never materializes and it's trusting God anyway. Jo Joy is facing the ups and downs of marriage and trusting God anyway. Joy says, it isn't what I feel, it's what I know. And what I know is that Christ is risen and he is seated upon the throne and he has secured me in him, abiding in him with my brothers and sisters. And so in spite of how it feels and in spite of what it looks like, I choose faith. I trust Christ and I have joy. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.